can't help but sing that hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away, without thinking of, of uh, Dick DeWitt, John R. DeWitt, who used to be the pastor here, and I never saw him sing that hymn without tearing up. He, he, could, uh, he couldn't get through it without choking up. I know it meant something to him in his childhood, a childhood hymn written uh, by a Sunday school teacher to teach the Apostles' Creed uh, to their class, a very appropriate hymn for our reflections in, on Easter week, a holy week leading up to uh, the resurrection, but first remembering very soberly, as Jerry captured in his prayer, that Jesus first endured the cross and hell in our place, uh, that we might be raised with him. There is a green hill far away. Dearly, dearly has he loved us. Turn with me, please, to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We'll pick up where we left off. We studied verses 1 through 7 last week. We'll take 8 through 16 now. And uh, we've been looking at Abraham. We'll continue to look at Abraham uh, a little farther. And again, thinking of Jerry Roberts, he, took, he pointed out to us yesterday at our table that he had been reading in Luke that Jesus preached the gospel. Luke says Jesus preached the gospel. And in Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 7, 8, somewhere in there, uh, it says uh, that, that the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham. That can sound strange to some of us who were brought up as I was, thinking that there is this very, very sharp dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and never the twain shall meet. That the Old Testament God was one kind of God, the New Testament God is another kind of God. That God had something He was doing with the Israelites in the Old Testament, He's doing something new in the New Testament. And so when, well, sometimes when we read words like gospel or Moses seeing Christ ahead of time, then we're a little bit confused, but it's not because, it's not the Bible's fault, it's our fault. And the, the truth is, the whole Bible from, God, from Genesis to Revelation is gospel, good news. And that's what we're learning in this chapter. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that God had, dis, had determined from before the foundation of the world to save through His Son Christ that good news was being carried out long before Abraham was even born. And so when we read in chapter 11, what we're reading in chapter 11 is the record not of the faith of other people as if they are our heroes, as if they have done something by which God was, was constrained to bless them. We're reading the record of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise of the gospel. And these people listed are people who should comfort us to the point that we say, if God, if God could continue his work of redemption through them, he can surely continue it through me. If God can, if God can preach the gospel through Abraham and fulfill his promises through Abraham, then he should surely be able to fulfill them through me. God is faithful to his promise. We looked last week at the definition of faith being that, that instrument by which we receive the gift of salvation 
and the gifts of salvation that continue throughout our lives. Faith does one thing. It receives. It receives the free gift of grace. Faith never obligates God to do something. Faith receives. So with that in mind, with that definition clearly in mind, we're reading about God's faithfulness to his gospel. Faith as the instrument of receiving his grace. Now let's look at verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this portion of Scripture, wonderful things about our heavenly home, wonderful things about the faithfulness you are carrying out in us through our Savior, our champion, our perfecter, the pioneer of our faith, even Jesus Christ. O Lord, let us leave this place not with increased confidence in ourselves or even beating up ourselves that we don't have more faith. Would we leave this place instead with greater confidence in our Savior? And with that confidence in Him, in that homeland He has purchased for us, may we live courageously and run with endurance the race set before us. For those, Lord, here who are still trying to make it on their own, those still trying to earn their own salvation, make up for their past, those who don't think that they need as much grace as other people, would this be the day of their salvation? What a glorious thing it would be to be converted and Holy Week ahead of Easter. Would this be the day? We pray in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said, amen. Well, this is uh, Sunday begins, so there's a big, big event happening on Sunday. What is that big event? No, 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 no. I'm from Augusta, remember? <laughs> the Masters, yes, that's right. Oh, yeah, it is Easter, too. That's the, 
That is sort of the, uh, I'm not being irreverent, that's sort of the Augusta joke. And uh, it's based on a, a real life incident because Cliff Roberts, you know Clifford Roberts, uh, who started, who founded the Augusta National and determined that the uh, Master's Week would be the first uh, full week of April every year. Well, it often conflicts with Easter. It either comes Easter falls on the front end or falls on the back end. And even though there's nothing official happening on Sunday in the Masters, there's plenty happening this coming Sunday at the Masters. And so one of, uh, one of the uh, Episcopal priests who is legendary in Augusta, uh, was right up the street from me, uh, years ago, before the Masters got as, even as big as it was, but it had started to gain national attention, it fell the, the, the final round fell on Easter Sunday. And the Episcopal priest said, I think I can reason with Mr. Roberts. I know him. I know him socially. So uh, he went and met with Mr. Roberts, and he said, uh, don't you think that it would be more appropriate to honor our Lord by moving, e- moving the masters off of Easter this year? Mr. Roberts from North Carolina said, my dear brother, the tournament occurs the same time every year. It's your Easter that keeps moving around. <clears throat> so you move your Easter and you won't have a conflict with our masters. The masters has remained where it is. A couple of years ago, uh, maybe three, it runs together for me, but you uh, would likely remember this, Jordan Spieth, The young phenom was headed toward another victory, headed easily toward a victory until he got to those three holes that we call Amen Corner. It's a par three, number 12 is, par three over a little body of water pooled there by Ray's Creek. And what did Gordon Spieth do? Quadruple bogeyed the par three by putting three in the water. It was, it was horrible to watch. It was devastating to watch. Not as painful as watching Ernie Els that year make a nine on number one, but uh, it, was, it was painful to watch that, quadruple bogey. I heard him say on the, I heard uh, Michael Greller, his, um, his uh, caddy, who was his sixth grade teacher, you know, and and kept up a relationship with him and became Jordan Spieth's caddy when Jordan Spieth's father gave up the job. I heard him say, there wasn't any comment on television, but I heard Michael Greller say to Jordan Spieth after he hit the third one, it's only golf. And I wondered if that was the case. And then when, after the day was over, Michael Greller tweeted this. Don't feel sorry or sad for us. We will not get stuck in this moment, nor should you. At the end of the day, golf is a sport. I'm especially grateful to have an unconditionally loving wife, Ellie Greller, family and friends who treat us the exact same regardless of wins and losses. This isn't life and death stuff. There are far greater struggles that exist in this world than not winning the Masters. What would you attempt for Christ 
if you knew you couldn't fail. If you knew, like Michael Greller, and I suppose Jordan Spieth, by extension, if you knew that ultimately you couldn't fail, they knew they couldn't fail. Well, you said they failed the golf tournament, yes, but they said they couldn't fail the important stuff. They could never lose the love of their unconditional family and friends. There's a note of the gospel in there, isn't it? What the chapter 11 tells us is that we can never lose the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the record of His faithfulness, the faithfulness of His love attached to us in Christ. If Christ is ours, our lives are united to His, we cannot lose His love. We cannot ultimately fail, even if we fail at what we do, even if what, whatever we put our hand to, if it doesn't succeed by the world's definition, it can never ultimately fail because failure is only loving, is losing the love of God in Christ. You can't lose it. What would you do if you cannot fail? Well, we would do what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do. All of this is... All of these, this of chapter 10 and 11, are focused like a laser beam on moving us to do the one thing that he's going to command us to do in chapter 12, verse 1, verses 1 and 2. Run the race. Let us run the race set before us because of Christ. And so he's saying, because of Christ's love, because of the unfailing, faithful love of God in Christ that has never failed from the beginning of time till now. Run the race with endurance. That's our proposition. We must run this race with endurance because Jesus loves us. So, what do we do in the meantime? How do we live out practically uh, uh, trusting in the love of Christ such that we run with endurance? Well, we do it by, by receiving His present grace and focusing on our future glory. I get those terms from what we studied last week. I quoted John Owen. I don't think I named him, but that Puritan theologian who in his commentary on Hebrews said, here is the definition of hope. Hope encompasses all that is of present grace and future glory. Remember we said hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is certainty. Hope is a title deed. Hope is absolute assurance. So assurance is this. We have this assurance. We have everything we need of grace for the present and we have the guarantee of fulfilled grace in future glory. We can't lose. We cannot fail. Well, what does it mean to run the race by trusting in present grace? I want you to look at it with me in verses 8 through 12. In 8 through 12, we have three things listed as uh, examples of present grace we must receive appropriate in order to run with endurance this race, this race of the Christian life. Number one, we must receive the gift of obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went and lived in lands of promise and so forth. 
Now, <clears throat> he's going to make a distinction. I'll just give you a heads up here. He's going to make, a, uh, the, the author is going to make a distinction between the way he uses faith in verses 8 through 12 and verses 13 through 16. He's not going to mean, he's not going to say, he's not going to say that faith is defined differently, but rather faith functions differently. So in verses 8 through 12, faith functions this way. It is the means by which we do what we're supposed to do. It's that receiving instrument. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham received obedience. Let me say it another way. God got obedience into Abraham through his instrument of faith. Does that make it clear? Well, sometimes we function it this way. Oh, Abraham, boy, he must have really, he must have really had a good quiet time. He must have thought real hard about it. And then by triumphant, counterintuitive, overconquering faith, he said, I am going to obey the Lord. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I am going to obey the Lord. What a good boy am I. But not only is that theologically incorrect because God has to give us faith, it's historically incorrect because Abraham didn't obey immediately. In fact, Abraham messed up a number of times before he finally got to the promised land. Now, we can't beat up on him too hard. It'd be like, it'd be like uh, you, many of you, I'm sure, have grown up in Memphis as the only home you've ever known. What if somebody came to you and said, I want you to move to Juneau, Alaska, and uh, I'm not going uh, to tell you what you're going to do there. I just want you to go. You don't know anybody. You're going to leave all your family and friends here and, uh, and, and get rid of all this stuff and just go out there to Juneau, Alaska. And then I'll give you the next instruction. Be tough, wouldn't it? But Abraham, he did move initially. He moved from Ur. Ur, he was very comfortable in Ur. All his kinfolk were there. He was, uh, he was comfortable with the kind of religion he had. He wasn't a faithful worshiper of God. He worshiped the moon. And so God appears to him and says, Abraham, I want you to go to the other side of the world across the desert here, and I want you to set up shop over there. I'm going to do something new in you. Well, Abraham starts. He starts walking, and he gets about halfway to a place called Haran. And he's got so much stuff, he bogs down. He's got 350 goats, and, you know, he's got all kinds of uh, stuff, and he bogs down. And then the Bible says, without much commentary, the, the, the God called again. Abraham, let's get up and go. Oh, Abraham goes a little farther. And then he, <clears throat> he, runs into, he runs into some trouble, and he's afraid somebody's going to kill him to take his wife. So what does he do? He lies about her. She's my sister. Let's her take him, take her. Uh, and there are other faults of faith like that, lapses of faith. Abraham is not consistent. Abraham is really not impressive at all until about chapter 22 of Genesis, and the whole thing starts back in chapter 12. It is by faith, it is through the instrument of faith that God finally, we could say, God finally made Abraham obedient to get him to the promised land. 
So in theology, we call obedience a means of grace. You're used to talking about, about uh, the, the Lord's Supper and baptism and fellowship and, and uh, worship and things like that as means of grace, these sort of conduits from heaven by which God pours grace into us, these, this sort of these, these, these IV ports through which He gets grace into us, but we're not always accustomed to hearing obedience as a means of grace because, again, we're wired to be legalists. We're wired to think, okay, obedience is my responsibility, and if I'm obedient, then God will bless me. If I'm obedient, God will make up for my past. But the Bible teaches that obedience is as much a gift of grace, as much a means of grace, as any other means of grace. Just think about it. Think of the things that He does for us when we obey. Um, when When you obey God's Boundaries for marriage. Life goes better. Really complicated to keep up with a girlfriend. Keep it secret. Keep it secret from your wife and keep it secret from your children. I've seen it. I've seen people try to do it over and over again. And they always, anytime they finally get into it, they always describe it as a web. So complicated. Seems so good at first. But when I try to do something, Outside of God's bonds for marriage, it never works. It's, it's um, when I warn young people about having sex outside of marriage, there are many complications. Not only the complications of, of sexually transmitted diseases, uh, but the complica- complications of, of uh, unplanned pregnancies, complications of a burdened conscience. We flourish when we do things God's way. It's not, not that God says, okay, you've done it my way, now I'm going to reward you with it. This is the way He wired us to live. I want you to live in blessing. I've given you my laws that life may go well with you. When we try to mess up His order for the week, we're going to do, all, we're going to do whatever we want to on whatever day of the week we want to. But the Bible says six days you shall labor, the the, the seventh day or the, the Sabbath day is for the Lord your God. It should be a day of worship. But we, when we consistently use the first day of the week as our weekend and see Sunday as something we can do anything we want to with, inevitably life becomes excessively complicated, wears us down, doesn't work right. We flourish by God's Laws. We find joy when we're obedient. Things work when we are obedient. We have peace of conscience with God when we're obedient. We sleep well at night when we're obedient. Those are all, that, those are all experiences of grace because God has made us obedient. Obedience is a means of grace. Abraham obeyed because God made him obey. God had his work cut out for him in making, obedient, making Abraham obedient. He had to pop him upside the head several times, get him back on the road. Sarah the same way. Sarah by faith conceived. Was it because the angels came and announced to Sarah, you're going to have a baby? And she said, great, I knew, I knew God would provide for me. I'm eager to have a baby. No, she laughed in his face. There's no way I'm going to have a baby. God made her obedient, ultimately, made her womb 
obedient. She didn't do anything to make her womb obedient. God made her womb obedient. First thing you do is, is to receive the gift of obedience. How do you do that? I've said this before in one of our services. I have a, a rifle that uh, I refuse to get fixed because I need it for this illustration. <laughs> and it's, it's this rifle that I've, that I've inherited from my grandfather, and it's an old classic uh, Remington 500 series, and, and uh, the only way you can get it to shoot accurately is to aim to down to the left, to the left and, and to the, to, uh, down and to the left of the target. So I got to where I could shoot that thing with pinpoint accuracy because I knew where to aim it. I knew the sight was bent. And what I loved to do was go out to the dump with my buddies. That's where Rednecks shot in those. That was our, uh, that was our hunting club. And, and uh, I would love to say I'd like to have a shooting contest. I have this super accurate rifle, and whoever can shoot it better than I do can get the icy on the way home, you know. And then... So I would, I would shoot, pow, 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 pow. Well, how hard is that, you know? It's only 25 yards away. Give me the rifle. Pow, pow, they're always up here. I don't know, George, you're amazing. You're an amazing marksman. Yeah, so, it's, uh, so the only way you could hit the target was to aim away from the target. The only way you can become obedient is to go first to Christ. Some of you are trying to, get over an old habit, trying to get rid of a besetting sin, trying to cure some. And it's because you keep saying, I've got to do this. I've got to read my way out of this. I've got to punish my way out of this. I've got to, go to, I've got to go to church my way out of this. I've got to have people keep me accountable. Those things are helpful supports. But Christ is the only one who will make you obedient from the heart. You pray about it. You fast about it. You ask others to pray for you. To become obedient, Christ will give you the grace to be obedient. Aim away from the target to hit the target. All right, the others I won't spend so much time on, but that one was one I really wanted to emphasize today. The other things come in quick succession. We receive a gift of place. We have to receive heaven as a free gift. He says that they, that, uh, that Abraham obeyed and went to this place. And uh, heaven is not going to be earned by your good works, by your consistency. Heaven is only gained by faith in Christ. Abraham received faith. The faith made him obedient. The obedience led him ultimately to the promised land. You receive Christ He forgives your sins. You receive him for the ability to do what he calls you to do. And by constantly looking to him, he makes you faithful to the end. And you wind up in the place that he has prepared for you. Thirdly, living by present grace is to receive the gift of a human savior. He he makes this point that Sarah conceived, Abraham conceived, this this was a baby. This was... They were beyond the ability to have babies, physically speaking, but what was born of them was really a baby. Isaac was really a baby. And that's important to understand because we had to have a human Savior. I'm going to bring through you not just this son named Isaac. He's not going to be all that much to write home about either. 
it's going to be obvious that we've got to look to somebody else. Then we have Jacob. Things only go downhill farther. And then you have a whole list of other people who are not very impressive. But through those human people, through that line of Judah, God brings Jesus Christ, a very, a truly human Savior. Of course, He's fully God. He is also fully man. We don't know how those go together. But we do know through history, people, because they've tried to over-rationalize, because they've tried to rationalize it, have wound up on one degree of <clears throat> one side of error or the other, trying to make Him so much God that He can't be human, trying to make Him so much human that He can't be God. That was part of the problem in the, in the Reformation, that, that, uh, that, that, that Christ had been so, because they couldn't understand how he could be fully God, fully human, they erred on the point of saying he is, he is so God, he is so otherly. Let's say it that way. He's so otherly, we need to have somebody else in between, like Mary or saints, some humans we can identify with. And the reformers said, no, if you do not have a fully human Christ who can sympathize with your weaknesses, who can understand everything it is to be human and remain so at the right hand of the Father, if you don't have a human Christ, you don't have a Christ at all. So you receive Him, not just as the one who makes you obedient, not just as the one who has a home prepared for you, but as one who is still human, who still has scars in his hands and his side and his feet, one who still knows your pain, one who can still empathize with you, one who is with you, cheerleading you and saying, I know it's difficult. I know what it feels like to be betrayed. I know what it feels like to be, feel the lure of temptation. I know what it's like to be left alone. I am with you. Come on, we're running this race together. I'm the pioneer, I'm your champion, I'm bearing it with you. You receive the gift of obedience, you receive the assurance of an eternal home, and you receive the assurance that you have a human Savior, and you receive it all as a gift. You can't pay for it. It's like my, <clears throat> my daughter, my, uh, my youngest daughter, we had twins, and so you had to buy two of everything at the same time including when they learned to ride bikes. Well, I couldn't afford two bikes at one time. And uh, so I had to buy one bike and then make up a story for why I couldn't buy the other bike for a while. And uh, I was helped by the fact that this one was a little more of a tomboy. She wanted a blue bike anyway that was small enough. She's a tomboy and she's super small. So she had to have a small blue bike and uh, one that I could afford. It took me a while to find. I finally found it. It was a used one, and I spruced it up, and I brought it into my office, and she went to the little school that was below our, uh, that was on the same campus as our church, and uh, she'd waited for this bike, and she had asked every day when this bike was going to come in. I picked her up from school, and I said, I want you to come to my office, and she came into my office. She rounded the corner, and she saw her bike, and it was like it glowed. She was breathtaking. Oh, that's my bike. And then she said, she reached her little hand in her pocket and she pulled out a nickel that she was going to use for milk that day. And she said, here, let me pay you for it. <laughs> that's, the way we, that's the way we treat the Lord. 
here is my grace. You couldn't earn it if you wanted to, but I want to give it all to you. Just receive it. Receive the gift of obedience, the gift of a homeland, the gift of a Savior. Well, not only do you need that, you need that present grace to endure. You need to concentrate on their future glory. So remember I said in the first point that faith is spoken of as a means. By faith we receive these things. Now he's describing faith as a manner. In the first section, faith is the empowerment to do what we're required to do. Now he's saying faith is also the inspiration or the motivation to do what we are supposed to do. So now he's using faith to describe the way they have succeeded. We could say by God's faithfulness, they died believing. By faithfulness, they entered the promised land and so forth. So verse 13, they died in faith or they died faithfully. That is, they died ever confident that they were going to receive a promised land. And what did that do? That proved that God had worked faith in them. Uh, Verse 14, this made it clear. Look at this, uh, verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. See, they said, well, even though we're exiles, though we haven't seen this promised land that we are supposed to be entering, meaning the spiritual foundation of the earthly promised land, these people who speak this way make it clear they are seeking the Father's land. That's the literal translation. They're seeking the Father's land. The way you speak gives away whether or not you have faith. The way you talk about the future, the way you talk about your present losses. I was talking to a man just this morning whose family's moving away. I said, that must be heartbreaking to you. He said, "Uh, no, I know it's God's plan. You don't speak that way unless God has already worked in you. Your, Your speech it, it bubbles out of you that Christ is working in you. So he's saying again, look, let's brag on what the Lord is doing. How in the world could these people live this way, confident of a, of a, of a spiritual inheritance they can never see? How could they talk about it with such confidence, with such assurance? It's because God is working in them through Christ. Secondly, we focus on that promised land. We focus on it. We don't don't carry heavy baggage here. We don't allow our roots to go too deeply here, materially speaking. We don't let our hearts to get get, uh, clingy to this world, this life, and what we're experiencing, our memories and so forth, because we're made for a world that is not here, a world that is going to be here and a remade earth, but this world as it presently is in its fallen condition is not our home. We are pressing on toward a homeland. We are seeking it. It's very interesting. This Greek word that is used, uh, uh, translated seeking in verse 15, if they'd been thinking about that land, um, I'm sorry, verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. 
that land that they are desiring. That word desire is typically used to describe people as in a greeting. You see it in chapter 13, verse 24, I greet you. That's the word used here. They were greeting a city. It's never used to refer to something objective or material. It's used to refer to people, which tells us something about heaven, doesn't it? It tells us that what we are, what we should be longing for in our homeland in heaven is the people who are there. They were seeking not just a place where they didn't have to fight battles anymore, not just a place where they didn't have to plant and reap anymore. They were seeking a place where the Savior is, the person they love. They're seeking a place where their fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and friends who have preceded them, who died in the faith, they're seeking that community. Well, then he makes it very clear what he's talking about, verses 15 to 16. We put it all together this way in kind of a syllogism because still <clears throat> these Hebrew Christians may have been thinking, no, wait a minute, well, I thought they were looking for this land. I thought we had to get the Romans out of this land before we can really inherit it. I, I thought the focus was on terra firma, something we can put our feet on. No, 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 he says, here, let me, let me walk you through the logic of it. Verse 14, they said they were looking for a homeland. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them. They're looking for a homeland. It could not have been their earthly birthplace. It couldn't have been Ur. Abraham said they, they knew they couldn't return there. They, Abraham knew how to return to Ur. You just go back the way you came from. So if they said they're looking for a homeland and it could not be their place of birth because they knew that... They knew where that place was. Well, it must have been their home in heaven. Verse 16. Third point, third thing that we focus on in the future that keeps us, that keeps us faithful in the present is the fact that God has prepared this promised land for us. Let me give you an illustration of this. <clears throat> One of my children, when they were young in um, grade school, did something very wrong. And uh, I found out about it. It was reported to me. So my first, uh, my first response as a pastor is to imagine the worst possible end. It is to think, okay, from this they go to that, from this they go to that. Well, I may as well start putting in my calendar to visit them in prison because they're going to, it's just, it's just it's a straight line. So I talked to uh, an older, wiser father, an elder in my church, and I said, what do I do? And he just calmed me down. He says, yeah, calm me down. And uh, he said, I think you need to lead with love. Maybe you need to put into practice, he said it more gently than this, maybe you need to put into practice what you preach, that uh, God leads us by grace. So he's the one who gets the credit for the idea, not me, but this is what I, he led me to do. I picked that child up from early from school and I said, today is just going to be a day for us. We're going to eat anything you want, 
We're going to go anywhere you want to do. We're going to waste time like we want to. We're just going to have fun. All day long, we're going to have fun. And we had fun. We finally came to the end of the day, and we were eating ice cream together, and it was, I said, how's this, David? It's been great. I said, you know I love you? Yeah, I know you love me. So then I confronted that child with what I had found out. That child was heartbroken, ashamed, just felt worthless. And I said, you realize I knew all of that before we had this day. Did you feel that I loved you through the day? Did you feel that I was having fun with you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I said that I knew this bad thing about you this whole time, but we did it anyway. I prepared this for you in love even while I knew you had done this bad thing. That's what God does for us. I'll give you two verses. We won't look them up. won't take the time to look them up, but you look them up later. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. You know this one. John chapter 14, verse 2. Revelation 21, verse 2. All of them, I could give you some more. Each have this in common. God has prepared a place for us. Jesus said, I prepare a place for you. If it had not been so, I wouldn't have told you that. But I go to prepare a place for you that you may be where I am. 1 Corinthians 2 says, uh, He has prepared a place for those who love Him. Uh, Matthew says, or has Jesus the judge saying, Come enter the joy of the Lord, receive the inheritance that I have prepared for you. Uh, Revelation 21, a bride prepared for her husband. It's all, it all communicates very careful, loving, eternally planned preparations. Did God know when he was making those plans? Did God know you would fail the way you did 40 years ago? When God made those plans for you, did God know you would sin as you did yesterday? When God made those plans for you in love and prepared that place for you ever so carefully and marked it out and made the address, did He not know that you would have the sinful attitude that you did this morning? He did. He knew all of that and prepared it nevertheless. Because his confidence is not in you. His confidence is in his gospel. His confidence is not in your track record, your future potential. His confidence is in his faithfulness. That's what chapter 11 is about. God's faithfulness. Does it encourage slothfulness in the meantime? Absolutely not. When you realize that kind of eternal planning love for you, it motivates you. It empowers you to give everything you can to endure the race set before you because you know you can't fail with Jesus' love. I was going through some things the other day and I found a letter 
that Sandy Wilson wrote to me on the day I took this call. The, um, we had this, uh, uh, this plan of sending the announcement out to the church that I was in and then a little bit later sending the plan out to, to the church here. It was a very, very difficult decision. It was gut-wrenching and it was very difficult to announce it to my people and, and uh, friends and family. And uh, so when the, uh, when the announcement, they were going to push the button to send the email blast out to all the people, I, uh, being the courageous leader that I am, found my way into the storage closet in the church kitchen bathroom <laughs> and locked the door. And there I was in, in, uh, uh, with my phone and uh, uh, holed up in there just waiting for the bomb to go off. And sure enough, the phone started blowing up, you know, with text messages and then the emails and and there were lots and lots of emails and text messages that there was only one that had Sandy Wilson's name on it, so I opened that one. And he wrote this. I know you're inundated with emails, but I can't put my head on the pillow tonight without expressing my gratitude for your prayerfully seeking God's direction for your life and ministry, which led you to the conclusion to accept Second's Call. It's all seemed right to me from the very beginning, and it certainly seems right to me now. But I know that sometimes doubts creep in. Usually about two weeks after you make the move. That's Sandy, isn't it? He knows precisely the day. <clears throat> and then he's got a plan for it. Those doubts creep in about two weeks after you make the move. And you say, what on earth did I just do? I recall that feeling, especially after my move to Lookout Mountain. But by the time I came to second, I had come to the conclusion that, listen to this, God is so good, so gracious, so merciful, that even if I made a horrendous mistake, He would bless me anyway. I didn't see that as, it is, as an excuse for stupidity, just another reason to trust Him. Just another reason to trust Him. You can't fail because He loves you.